0: i oh, Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Hall of Famer and star of this show, Kevin Kernan. This is Coaching Kernan, episode 271 on our network here today. Special guest. We had a special song. I'm going to let our guest talk a little bit about that song and the, and the singer as we get into our show. But before we do, want to thank our audience, uh, close to 50,000 subscribers now. Keep doing what you're doing. Make sure you give this episode a five-star. I don't think I'm going to have to twist your arm for that. You're in for a great one today write some great comments for Kevin underneath the rating and we'll continue to give you great content like we do every week. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, and now the, the newest podcast network on iHeartRadio. So you can get us on iHeart as well. Let's support our newest friend. Um, but with that, uh, you know, Kevin, want to welcome you back to your show. 74 countries listening to you. As I said, 50,000 subscribers. Another beautiful article. I know Two weeks ago, I think I said you wrote my favorite article, but you, you eclipsed it this week. Uh, loved it. It was just, it was wonderful. I passed it around to hundreds of friends at the tournament I was at, and I'm sure you got great feedback from it. But uh, welcome back to your show. Uh, to kind of share with us what you're seeing out there and share a little bit about that article, what inspired it.
1: Yeah, Dave, thanks. See, um it's called Spirit Keeper. It's up dot ninecom easy to find, B-A-L-L-N-I-N-E.com. No pop-up ads, easy to read. Um, Kind of like uh, one of the few places you can go to get real baseball news, and uh, and also on Sundays I do a thing called the story, and it's basically anything I want to do, which is nice because there's editorial control, and it can be anything. And uh, a few you know a few weeks ago I wrote about our guest that's coming on. Um, this past week I wrote about a guy. I saw a little blurb on TV, and for people who don't understand, you know. Americans really can't do much anymore, you know, they, unless it's on TikTok and they can figure out what, how to do something. Like I was just reading an article that Americans on TikTok influences a surprise that there's butter on bread in European countries on sandwiches. So it's, uh, it's really a strange world we're in. So um, I, I saw this thing on TV and I just saw the guy's shirt. It's a spirit keeper project. I didn't know who he was, and then I went to work on the internet tracking him down. Tracked him down. His name is Terry Klossman. He's out of Ohio. He's a welder and an artist. So he's he's a pencil artist, but he also does welding sculptures, and he's a, a welder. So he's a worker. You know, he, he works for a living. He works with his hands. Uh, Blue Collar America. And, um, and he, on his own, he started in, in July of 2021 of basically cleaning up uh, fixing broken stones, raising sunken stones, going through the cemeteries to get things done right, adding death dates that are not there for spouses and things like this, of former baseball players. It's really an amazing story. It is one of the best I've written. And um, he's done like 150 graves. He just did another one uh, Saturday when I spoke to him and wrote the story. And, and uh, it's really some insight into life, um, baseball, And he he does. He'll do anybody from Bob Feller because Bob Feller is the only member of the 48 Cleveland Indians, Cleveland Indians, that uh, last team that won the World Series. He's the only member of the Indians to be uh, actually uh, buried. um, His gravesite is in Ohio. So um, and I told a great Bob Feller story in there with with me interacting with Bob. I'll let you read the article. But that's basically it because I want to. I want to get to our guy, and uh, uh, but just go to ball dot Read that later, and you'll enjoy it.
0: Yeah, definitely will, and pass it around to two or three friends. And uh, again, yeah, ball nine—they uh, do a great job. We'll support our brothers over there, and especially Kevin's—you you won't be disappointed. Two days a week, you're going to be just captivated by his writing, um, and from his writing and his relationships, uh, we we have a wonderful guest today and my introduction to him will do him no justice, and I'm going to let his, his stories and his his very being do that for the show, but a uh, real simply best-selling author, inspirational speaker, producer, New York Yankee executive, former bat boy, former professional baseball player as well. Um, want to welcome Ray Negron to our show today. Ray, welcome to our show. What
2: an honor to be on with you and the great Kevin Kernan, Hall of Famer. I love
0: that. Yep, he's the Hall of Famer. There's no question about it, and America's most beloved sports writer and brings, I mean, brings magic to all the articles and does it the same thing for our show right here. Hey, I wanted, I wanted to get—we uh, we had a special intro music today and it was a uh, Frankie Valley song and and you do so much great work out there outside of your work with the New York Yankees and and it's encompassed in there. Could you share with our audience the, the significance of that song uh, to you?
2: Well, the the name of the song is "To Give" is the reason I live. And it says it all right there. It's a song that, to me, it's the most powerful Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons song, but yet it's the song that's least known in his repertoire. And for me, it just re- represents what I am doing from now until the day that I die, because I came with nothing and I will leave with nothing. So while I'm here and I have, I will give. You know, there's so many people who need to survive from day to day. And uh, uh, I can honestly say that a big part of me learning to be that way was being around the Bronx Bombers and the great George Steinbrenner and the wonderful Billy Martin and Reggie and Thurman. And these are people that people didn't know how much they actually gave and how much they actually cared. You know, because you're just reading the headlines, the stuff that Kevin Kernan and Phil Pepe and Maury Chass are writing on the back page of the Post and the news and all that stuff. So, you know, you want to read the sexy stuff. You don't want to see that today Dermot Munson stopped at a hospital to tell a little boy who had cancer that he loved them. You know what I'm saying? Or that Reggie picked up a little boy who had been in a fire and his 90% of his body was burnt. And he wasn't afraid to touch him, even though the little boy may have looked almost like a monster from the burn marks, but yet he was able to, in essence, touch the little boy and say, I love you. Okay. And I've heard George Steinbrenner say, I love you. And I've heard the wonderful Billy Martin say, I love you. You know, what's bigger than that.
0: It's the most powerful words you can say to, to anybody. And uh, you obviously have a special relationship with George Steinbrenner and would you share how that began and and how it manifested itself to your role with the Yankees today? June 1973, I'm outside Yankee
2: Stadium with a, a group of four others, and we were doing graffiti on one of the walls. And I, being a, 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 a big Yankee fan, even though I was from those streets, but I fell in love with the Yankees watching the film The Pride of the Yankees, Gary Cooper. And, you know, I was done. And so I was doing an NY on the wall, you know. I was actually trying to honor the Yankees, per se, you know, because they were going to knock down the stadium at the end of the year anyway, 1973. Next thing you know, a car pulls up on the sidewalk. Two guys jump out. Everybody starts to scatter. I flip over one of the guys. I'm caught. I'm put in a holding cell at Yankee Stadium, getting ready to be transported to the 44 precinct. But because one... Security guard says, This is where he belongs. There's nothing that you can do for these people. The other guy, when he heard him say that, he said, Give me the kid. Next thing you know, they're taking me into the Yankee locker room and uh, they're giving me a uniform. And the man says, You're going to be our bad boy tonight. That's how you're going to work off the damages. That night against the Cleveland Indians. I was the bad boy. The Yankees beat the Indians. The man who gave me that job comes up to me. and said, did you have a good time? Did you enjoy it? I said, yes, I did. You want to keep that job? I said, I would love it. He said, then you'll never do graffiti again and you'll tell your friends that they don't do it either. If there's one more mark on Yankee Stadium, you're out of here. And that man was George Steinbrenner.
0: And you've, you've been with the Yankees your whole career Um, what's some good advice you shared a little bit before the show, obviously developing a strong relationship with George Steinbrenner is, is hard to do. Not many can say they've done it and you seem to be in that fold. Describe that relationship a little bit and give the audience an idea of what, what kind of advice he would give you in in times of, you know, where you were questioning things like, you know, racism, as we mentioned before the show.
2: You know what? P- different people. I was the first true guy of color to work for the Yankees at that point. And he had just brought the team in that January of 73. Okay. And, um, I'll never forget that one time I was out on the field cause I could play a little bit. And so I used to shag when the, when the other bad boys were doing their errands inside the ball, uh, the, the locker room, I would be out in the field and I would be shagging and taking ground balls or fly balls, whatever, and uh, having the time of my life. And there were a couple of people that were quite jealous of it. And one guy the, that was one of the big bosses there went out on the field because George Steinbrenner was out of town and he knew it. He went out on the field. He grabbed me by the arm and he says, don't make a scene. Just walk off the field with me. And he took me to the visitor's locker room and where all the shoes were, he said, shine the shoes. Your people are very good at that. Okay, and it was like the most degrading and um, painful thing that I was going through at that moment. And the great Elston Howard had heard what had happened. He went and got me and brought me back to the Yankee locker room. And then when Steinbrenner got back into town, he told Mr. Steinbrenner what had happened. Mr. Steinbrenner asked me, why do you think these things keep happening to you? And I said, because those guys are uh, uh, a prejudice you-know-what. And so Steinbrenner just told me to sit down, and he just stared at me. Then he says to me, let me ask you a question. are uh, are they prejudiced or could they be jealous? He said, "There's a very fine line between prejudice and jealousy," and I used to, say, and I would say, "But I don't have anything. What what would they be jealous of me about?" And he says, "Because you have my friendship," and he said, "Aren't you friends with them?" And he says, "Those guys work for me. You have become my friend, and you're gonna find out as you grow up that jealousy is probably more dangerous." than prejudice because anybody can be jealous. And he was so right.
0: Yeah. We've had some some wonderful influences. Frankie Valley, we mentioned before, George Steinbrenner. Um, I'm going to throw another name at you and I, I know it's some, someone who just encountered recently, the Chaz Palman Terry. How how does how does he come into your world recently?
2: Uh, that that's been a, a thirty-some odd year relationship. He does the he does the play in the movie *A Bronx Tale*. George Steinbrenner had a friend named uh, Bill Fagazi, Fagazi Continental. He was one of his better best friends in New York. And Fagazi says to Steinbrenner one day, "I saw a movie about you and Ray Negron. And Steinbrenner thought I had cut a movie deal or something like that. He says, "No, George, it's a movie. uh, It's a a gangster movie." Steinbrenner saw the film, fell in love with it, and he invited Chaz Palminteri to Yankee Stadium. And then he asked me to go and visit with Chaz. It was a beautiful thing. And, And since that time, me and Chaz have been extremely close friends. And Chaz always loves to say that our lives, meaning him with the gangster Sonny and me with George Steinbrenner, have always mirrored each other.
0: No, those are are wonderful people that, obviously, who you are and what you do draws people to you, Um, big names or, you know, people who are just out there because it sounds like your whole world has been about giving back, and I think everybody loves an individual that does that because it's so rare. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you about a, uh, an individual that we have on our podcast that we, have, we hold true and dear to us. We think he's one of the finest gentlemen in the history of the game. And you've had a, you've, you you were with him for a little while when he was with the Yankees. Um, I want you to share, share an interesting story about Jim Cott. What, what don't we know about Jim Cott? Give me something.
2: Well, what you do know about Jim Cott is that he's one of the finest, finest individuals that's ever put on a major league uniform. Uh, just uh, 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 um, he, Number one, he's a man's man, but he can also be a wonderful, funny guy, and uh, he loved the arts. And when we would be on the road, uh, I always loved the fact that uh, after games we would go to clubs, and Jim Cobb would be the first one on the dance floor. And for me, he was a regular John Travolta. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it was hilarious. We, I'll never forget the first time we went out together was at a in Chicago, a club called Faces, and uh, me, Bobby Mercer, Lou Pinella, uh, Kitty. We all like barreled into a cab, and as we got to Faces and were trying to get out of the cab, the seat from the because so much weight, the seat from the cab fell out into the street, and Bobby Mercer. It fell, <laughs> fell on the floor. His loafers went flying. It was hilarious. And then we go into the club. The music goes on, and the first one on the dance floor is Jim Cott. And Lou Pinella is watching this. And Lou, who's a very competitive guy, as as uh, Kevin knows, says, "You know what?" That he goes. He's a hell of a dancer. Next thing you know, Lou goes on the dance floor and tries to copy all of uh, Kitty's steps. So, I mean, oh, forget about it. Jimmy was the best.
0: So he he could disco dance.
2: Oh, forget about it. He was a regular John Travolta.
0: <laughs> I have not, that's, I did not know that about him. We text almost every day and I'm going to have to bring that up. Please do. Definitely Please will. do. He has a show in two days. So that may come up in his show if he doesn't oh, catch you this. Play, you time. play Saturday Night Fever for him. I'm going to, every, for the rest of his time, I'm going to play that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to make his show video. So he has to do the dance. Oh
2: my God. So, oh.
0: I, I just got a couple more for him, and turn you over to Kevin with it. But uh, t- talk talk about Henry and me. What's Henry and me?
2: Henry and me. Uh, well, as Kevin knows, I I've done ch- I've done four children's books, and based on different situations in my life, and the children that have always been there, and you know, because my my world is our children. I love the aspect of the kids. As Babe Brute once said, "Baseball belongs to the kids." You know what I'm saying? And we've had some adults uh, pollute the game, where as opposed to making it better for the children. And uh, so I, I decided that I was going to do an animated film. And I, I called all of my Hollywood buddies and people in, in 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 music business, and I and I told them about my idea and would they in essence, uh, lend their voices. And the Richard Gears and the Chaz Palmentaries and the Cyndi Lauper's and on and on, Jose Feliciano, Frankie, you know, they all lend their voices. And we did a wonderful, baseball's first true animated movie. And uh, it got great, great reviews. I wish it would have done better on the box office, but, you know, I don't think my people knew how to market properly because... The film
0: itself was wonderful, Henry and Me. What in the uh, the premise of Henry and Me? What was it?
2: It was about a. Li- it's based on a story of a little boy that I met at a hospital when I was taking the players to Hackensack Medical Center, and I met this little boy with cancer, and uh, all he wanted was to be able to visit the Yankees before he died. And so I had the kid go to Yankee Stadium and I took him all around the stadium. He met all the players, fell in love naturally with the players, got to put on a Yankee uniform. And uh and before he died, he said, I'm I'm ready because I've had my greatest day.
0: Wow. That's uh all the things that you've done in your world. Um, I'm excited about your your latest project and I just want you to promote it a little bit and we'll have you back on again when it when it uh you can come back on anytime, but especially when it hits out there, because we want to make sure it's the biggest thing going. But the, the Ray Negron story, uh, the documentary you're working on, share a little bit about what's happening with that and um, when we can expect it out. Hey, for years,
2: I've had different documentary people, Academy Award winners, and they've made me offers to do documentaries of my life my life with George Steinbrenner, my life with George and Billy, All that kind of stuff, you know, what I lived in the '70s, and they've thrown a lot of money at me. And but the problem is that every time that I saw a script, there was always something negative about these people that they wanted to see or hear about. And you know what? I'm not for sale. I met a gentleman by the name of William O'Connell when I was speaking at a at a college. I speak at a lot of different universities including Columbia, Cornell, you name it. And uh, so I was at a place called uh, Suffolk Community College, and I met this professor there some 20 years ago. And uh, this guy had done a documentary on the homeless and how he made the homeless people feel that they still had life, that they still are worth something. It was It was a reminder of George Steinbrenner when I was telling George Steinbrenner that I was garbage, that I hated the fact that I was a man of color and him and Billy Martin used to like I mean Billy Martin took me to to meet Frank Sinatra so that Frank Sinatra could beat the hell out of me verbally about me downgrading my color. And uh, after that, you know, I am the proudest man of color in the world. So anyway, this Billy O'Connell told me that he wanted to do my documentary, and so in that sense, hey, I'm not—I I, didn't—I'm not getting paid anything to do this documentary, except that I'm a producer in it, and if it does well, then I'll be able to make some money that I can give to different causes. And uh, this documentary is—it tells the story of these wonderful men. It tells my story with. Billy with the boss with Reggie, I talk about this uh, my times with Thurman Munson, driving him to the airport, watching him take off in his private plane. Okay, the tears, the laughter, the joy, everything that I've gone through, the pain, the pain that I feel to this day. I'm you know I I, I die a little bit every day because I miss the boss though, so much. I miss Billy Thurman. Oh my God. When I see Reggie, I hug him and I kiss him and he doesn't understand why, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, he was Mr. October and he was a big brother when I needed a big brother.
0: Well, I think our audience can hear it in your voice. I know I could before the show and even even more so now as we're getting into some of the stories. You don't hear a lot of that anymore. And I'm glad that you're promoting that here where, where people are big enough and secure enough to tell others that they love them, um, that I love you is a powerful phrase. So. With with that, I'm going to pass you over to Kevin, um, and and uh, let Kevin deep dive a little bit because I'm interested to hear some more stories here. Ray, thanks so much.
2: My pleasure, brother. Ray, Ray,
1: uh, <laughs> tell us about your uh, your your baseball career and your draft pick with the Pirates.
2: Well, let me let me just say there again, none not that doesn't happen without the support of the New York Yankees, the support of Lou Penella of Walt Nonek Williams, of Sandy Alomar, of Thurman Munson. They taught me how to hit. They put me in the batting cage and and worked me until my hands got would bleed. And next thing you know, in the summer of 1974, I was the best player in New York City by far. It wasn't even close. I was the best hitter in New York City, and I ended up becoming the second-round draft pick when people, in essence, didn't think I could play. You know, and, you know, I I think that my all my energies and everything went into just the thought of being drafted, because I remember when I was playing and when I was playing in Little League and stuff like that, and people said, oh, you suck. You can't play. You're never going to amount. You can't, you know, and everything went into being drafted. I just wanted to be drafted, Kevin. I just wanted to get drafted. I don't care how bad the draft pick was. And then when when the Pittsburgh Pirates announced, in uh, in the second round from New York, Ray Negron, it was like the whole city went, oh, you know what I'm saying? And, and George Steinbrenner, I feel so bad because his his top baseball guy was a guy named Pat Gillick, and Gillick had privately worked me out on several occasions. He he went back to Steinbrenner says, well. We can draft them like in the fifth, sixth round, George, and that way we can get some pitchers early. And uh, and so George says, "If if we miss out on this pick, you're fired." <laughs> and so when the Pirates took me second, Steinbrenner was so angry. Oh, you know, he was happy for me, but angry because he wanted to be able to say that he drafted his bad boy. You know what I'm saying? And it would have been been a wonderful full circle story, you know, but it was what it was. And when, hey, listen, when I signed and I proved to America that I couldn't hit after all, I was back (laughs) with George anyway. Exactly.
1: So you were, and this is what people don't understand, so I want to make this clear. Um, Bat Boy back then is a lot different than Bat Boy now. You know, it's the same kind of tasks. Uh, but, but the access you had back then and the, uh, the relationships with the players in a, in a way, certain bat boys were like, like part of the team totally. And, and, and you know, the hijinks, the, the clubhouse humor, but also the highs and lows of the games. And, the, you know, we get to the world series with Reggie Jackson and, and he hits three home runs and, and there's the video to prove it, uh. Tell us what happened in that dugout during that whole, you know, that Reggie, uh, unbelievable night. And after each home run, and the fact that he was upset with with everything with the fans at that time, and and your role in and and in, in that whole escapade.
2: Kevin, again, you you lived in the clubhouse, so you know. Number number one in life in general uh a uh, 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 kids especially a uh, boys that come from tough neighborhoods and stuff like that like I did when you don't have a father there when, or it with my case when you have a father that gives you up for adoption and you know it it's it's the biggest pain in the world and i needed met my mentors and all the players knew my situation and a lot of these guys, Reggie came from a broken home. Bucky Dent came from a broken home. I mean, it just it just goes on and on. Billy Martin then ha- has same exact situation as me, you know. And so all of these guys, they really took me on, as uh, they were all my big brothers. I used in spring training. I roomed with Mickey Rivers one year. The next year, I roomed with Bucky Dent, who was the Golden Boy at that time. So I mean, these guys were there for me in that respect. They and they treated me like I was the twenty-sixth man on that team. You know, I I worked for Reggie Jackson when I when the Yankees. I my my day consisted of, in the morning I would go to the stadium, check with the boss, then I would go into Manhattan, I would work for Reggie Jackson, answer his fan mail. Uh, I would uh, go get wash his car get gas in it, make sure there's, you know, anything like that. Go to the cleaners, all these little things. And then after I finished that, if it was an off day, I would go to Billy Martin's cowboy store and do inventory, count the boots, the cowboy hats, the belts, all that stuff. You see what I'm saying? Busy day. It was a busy day, but look at the three people that I was working for. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And so, and so anyway... In the the summer of seventy seven, the summer of Sam, George, uh, Billy, I'm um, Billy and Reg, as you know, did not get along. There was no love lost, okay, and that's just the way it was. And to their credit, they did not ever take it out on me. You know what I'm saying? So they let, yeah, they let you have your relationships with each guy
1: without interfering.
2: One time Billy Martin came up to me like I was we were walking out of the ballpark together and he says to me, you and the big guy really get along well. And so I got nervous, you know, and I said, because Billy was my father, he was like a father. And I said, Billy, do you not want me to be his friend? And he stops in his tracks and he says, hey, let me tell you something. If I ever find out that you stop being his friend because of me, then me and you can no longer be friends. Do you understand me? That's and besides, question. understand your relationship with the guy is good for the team, so you keep being his friend because he's good to you, and 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 you got to give Re- uh, Billy credit for that. You know, sure, absolutely. You know, and I I I wish that B- Reggie would have took it more like that, but he understood. That I that this guy was like a father, but I always used to emphasize Reggie, he may be like a father, but you are my big brother, please don't ever forget that and so it it, it was always good, but he was very, very angry because he thought that the fans had sided with Billy over him, et cetera. so now it's October fourteenth of seventy seven and we're game six. Reggie hits the first home run and I go up to him and I said, Reggie, take a curtain call, man. The fans are going crazy. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. They don't deserve it. Uh, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. And so I walked away because I didn't want to piss him off. You understand? It's supposed to be a happy moment. He next time up first pitch, another home run, line drive hits a guy in the chest, almost killed him. Okay. Uh, I go up to Reggie again, Reggie, two We'll take a curtain call, come on, and he goes, "No, And I said, Reggie, if and when you hit the third one, you're gonna take a curtain call then, right? And he says, "You're crazy, but I'll do it and he And so I walked away next time up, he's leading off the inning. I'm in the bathroom about to pee the and I figured he two two at bats two pitches. There's no way in the world that it's going to happen. And I had to pee real bad because I was holding it the whole game. But the minute I put down my zipper, I hear the cro- the roar of the crowd. And I go, oh no. So I put my zipper up real quick. I didn't even finish peeing. I run outside. And when you watch the video, you see me walking out from the other side. Okay. Right. and And then finally everybody's going crazy. Willie Randolph is hugging him. And then I remember the, the the curtain call and I, and I push Willie away and you see me go to his ear and I say, Reggie, you promised. So he looks out, he goes, he takes the curtain call. But he, but at that, uh, writer's dinner, when the question came up, he said, the only reason I did it was because I promised Ray Negron.
1: Amazing. Amazing, and that's a, you know, that's a moment that'll live forever with the Yankees, and uh, it just shows, like I, you know, as I was uh, alluding to, bat boys uh, then were, you know, part of the team, especially if they, they 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 liked you and goofed around with you and spent time with you, and and also Thurman, you know, tell us about Thurman's uh, Cadillac and the advantage you got when he went away.
2: Well, you you know, it's funny that uh reggie and thurman became really good friends okay people people think that they weren't and this and that i can't stand i ask reggie can't stand when people say like howard stern recently asked him on his show reggie uh does it bother you that he was never friends with thurman munson and and reggie right then and there says hey I was friends with Ray, uh, with Thurman Munson and as a matter of fact there's a guy that's still with the Yankees who put us together his name is Ray Negron. He said if you watch Howard Stern's podcast with Reggie Jackson you could see that I, that I'm not uh BSing you. Okay. And uh, and he uh in essence acknowledges that and th- uh you want me to tell you how that happened? Sure. What happened was uh Remember you know, the whole thing about that Reggie may or may not have said he was destroyed, stirs the drink and Thurman can only stir it bad. Right. You know, and Reggie to this day says that he never said it like that, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't there, so I can't I can't respond to that. But the one thing I will say was that's that summer we were in Detroit at one point and uh Reggie was always the last one to leave the clubhouse. Yeah, always. And- Yep. And so I was walking into the into the trainer's room, and Gene Monahan was working out late on Thurman's knee. And so then Thurman goes, "You still here?" And so I said, "Yeah, uh, I'm going to a a, a sports bar, Gordy House Sports Bar." And Reggie wants to know if you want to go with us. And Thurman goes, "Reggie wants to know that? Mm-hmm. that he, that's how we used to talk with a high pitched voice." Yeah, voice. yeah. And so I go, yeah, he asked me to ask you. So he goes, all right, I'll go, yeah, yeah, tell him yeah. So then I go back to Reggie and I said, Reggie, Thurman wants to know if you wanna go to a sports bar with us. (laughs) And Reggie goes, Thurman said that? And I said, yeah. He says, all right, go get a cab, we'll all go together then. And so then I I go outside, get a cab, they walk out together. We jump in the cab and we went downtown Detroit and to the Gordy House Sports Bar. And we were had a hey, we had the greatest time once Thurman broke the ice. Because Thurman at that point had said to him, I don't like certain things, pa-pa, this and that. And they really talked their stuff out. And then at that point they shook hands. And then Thurman uh, and then uh, Reggie goes, Man, I'm glad that uh you asked me to go tonight. And I, he and Thurman goes. I asked you to go, and then he looks at Thurman. Looks at me, and then Reggie looks at me, and and Reggie goes, "Why was that bullshit?" And uh, and so I just looked down. And nobody said anything after that. We just chuckled and we left.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great one. That's uh you gotta have a you gotta have a peacemaker, and 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 that that was the role. And then the uh, and Thurman, the thing about Thurman, people understand was how. Um, yeah, he he had that gruff exterior, but he was a he was really like a he, he was a, he was he was so um, such a nice guy and like a teddy bear type guy and.
2: Uh, well, and, let and, let me tell you because you asked me a question about about Thurman.
1: Yeah. The we're, in,
2: we're in Boston. I drove up with another bad boy, Hector Pagan, and so uh, the game. The next day, there was supposed it was an off day, and then the team was going to wherever the, it was going. So after that game in Boston, Thurman goes, "You drove up, right?" I said, "Yeah." You got your so you got your car here. I said, "Yeah." He says, "You want to drive me to Teterboro? And so I will drive you anywhere. So then he goes, "Let's go." We jumped in in my car and we jetted. To Teterboro Airport from Boston. Because he had a day off and he could go back home. Because he had a day off and he could go back home. And I said, Why do you want to get home so bad? He says, Because uh, uh, I can get home tonight and tuck in my children. Mm. And I used to say, uh, Dermot, why why is that so important? And he says, You got a dad? I said, I got a dad, but I don't have a dad. Mm. And he goes, I have a dad, but I don't have a dad. And he goes, and you know what? I always said to myself that I'm going to be the greatest father ever, ever. And you know, and I, and, and actions speak a lot of them words. And I want to be there. And and his son had just been born, and stuff like that. And he just, he just loved his children so much. And when we got to the airport, Kevin, I'll never forget this. Like I, I I had said, man, I, I still don't get it because I, I'm looking at this man getting ready to jump on an airplane by himself and fly it to Canton, Ohio. And, he's, and he says to me, listen to me, asshole, when you grow up, you're going to find out that nothing is going to be more important than the children you have. And you better be a great dad. You hear me? You better be a great dad, or I will bitch slap you. Then, you know. And uh, thinking about that, because to me, Thurman Munson would always be there in my life and my friend and everything. And it's yeah, that's a touching story. And, and of course,
1: before we get back to Thurman, I, I will give a plug here to your your kids, obviously, and uh, including the police officer her, sergeant, I believe, who's special. He's also a uh, delivered some babies.
2: He's delivered five babies, John Eric. I have two sons. I have four kids. And uh, one was the New York State Light Heavyweight Champion, Joey. My do- my daughter just gave me my first grandchild, Tony. And Prince Rowan is my grandchild. And then I have my son, Ricky, who, who, who actually played for the Toronto Blue Jays organization and left the Blue Jays to become a cop because that's what he that was always his dream, especially his brother was his idol. John Eric. John Eric is a sergeant uh, in the police and has delivered five babies. One of the babies, he actually had to do a procedure in his throat so that the baby could breathe. And today he's that baby's godfather. And and John Eric is, uh, you know, I mean, everybody's proud of John. Oh, and he's by the way, he's Reggie's godson. Exactly, and he, wasn't he on the Today Show or one of the he, he, he did Today, he did Good Morning America, he did Jennifer Hudson. I mean, he's he, you know, I have to remind them you're a policeman, not a celebrity. Remember that. <laughs> oh, that's
1: a great story, and, and just a dovetail. You, you believe too that probably George's uh, devotion to police officers and what he would quietly do probably
2: had something to do with two boys becoming police officers. Well, when my son saved that baby's life, he called me hysterical crime. Why? Because he says, if George Steinbrenner doesn't save your life back then, mm-hmm. I'm not a cop today. And I'm the only one that could have done that procedure on that baby. That baby would have died. Wow. Imagine.
1: it's uh, a powerful stuff. And then. And, and uh, you know the the other thing about Thurman was his love of music and uh, oh Neil my Diamond. God. Tell, tell us
2: about Neil Diamond. Oh God! Well, <laughs> Thurman loved, loved, loved. He adored Neil Diamond. Uh, that was the only hero he ever had. Was Neil Diamond? That was his hero. Okay, and he was always in the clubhouse singing Neil Diamond songs. Sweet Caroline, but his main song was I Am I Said. That was his song. That was his, an- his anthem. And well, today- I remember Diana,
1: uh, she's telling me that, too. You know, his wife, obviously. Oh, when forget about her, it. 99, yeah.
2: No, it's a beautiful, it's, it's, it's a wonderful song. If you really dissect the lyrics, you understand why it meant so much to this man. And uh, I will never forget I, it, whenever I used to get to the ballpark in those days, I would run upstairs, see the boss, then go to the secretary and she would have all the messages that were going down to the clubhouse and the pink paper. Remember you said memos? Yep. Both, and, yep. And so I would pick up the messages and then I would go downstairs and I would uh, put well, them I
1: in. want to interrupt real quick, but people don't understand, you know, because it's become such a Yankee Stadium now and uh, uh, it's just the world now. It's so corporate and everything. But you're right, because you I remember being at those those offices and, you know, the secretary is right outside, you know, George's yes. door. Right. And, and, right. You know, so there was no, just so everybody understands, there, there was no, nobody was in
2: between. It was like Steinbrenner, secretary, players. That's really right. what it was. Exactly right. And so I, I would pick up the messages. I would take them downstairs. I would put them in each locker according to who the message was for. And I'll never forget, I was putting Thurman's messages in his locker and I see one message, Neil Diamond. So, you know, Thurman comes over. I uh, I picked up the, what do you he call Hey, is this really Neil Diamond? And he goes, yeah, that's Neil Diamond. I said, you don't know Neil Diamond. <laughs> I don't know Neil Diamond. And he grabs me by the collar and takes me into Gene Monaghan's office. Remember he had the office all the way in the back? Yep. And that's where the telephone was. And he picked up the telephone and he dials Neil Diamond. Okay. And he's talking to Neil Diamond back and forth. So I, I go and put my ear to his ear because <laughs> I wanted to hear Neil Diamond's voice. And so as Neil Diamond is talking, Thurman looks at me, he chuckles, and then he pushes me away. And he goes, I don't go there. And then, and then, the conversation was unbelievable because Neil Diamond had asked Thurman to go on tour with him. He said, "Come spend a couple of weeks with me this this winter." This was probably July of seventy nine. Right. Kevin, okay, right
1: before he passed,
2: yeah. And so, uh, I will never forget. Thurman said, I have to talk to Diane about it, man, because to take off two weeks away from the kids is too much. I don't know. And Diamond was just encouraging him to do it, encouraging him to do it. And Diane told me uh, years later, because we talked about that, and she told me years later that she had said, Thurman, you got to go, you know, you got to go with him and Thurman was going to go on on the road with Neil Diamond for a couple of weeks. That would have been unbelievable. That would have been like a dream come true for Thurman.
1: Yeah, and back then, it was kind of a thing, if you remember later on. Um, you know, Bill Walton with the Grateful Dead, obviously. So there was a lot of uh, synergy between athletes and music back then. And, yes. And also, when you would drop Thurman off at the Teterboro, right, it worked out for you because you got to use his car.
2: Well, you know, it's funny that uh, – Reggie used to let Thurman park his car in in the what do you call it? In his parking lot on seventy-ninth and fifth. Okay. When the team would go on the road, I would like usually like take the car, like drop Thurman off at the airport, and then I would drive it back and put the car in Reggie's garage and then take my car and go home. And then it just became more, I became more accustomed to not even getting my car. I would just stay in the brand new Cadillac and go and pick up girls with it. You know what I'm saying? Why not? I mean, that's perks of the job back then. Initially, I didn't tell Thurman that I was doing that. He thought I was just taking the car back to Reggie's garage. But then one day, the team was on the road for two weeks. So for two weeks, I'm all over the place. And Thurman, because the car was like a loner per se, you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, oh yeah. The play, the players got those kind of cars, right?
2: Exactly. So Thurman, get we go. I drive the car uh, to the airport, and Thurman uh, actually on this particular time came back with the team, so they landed in LaGuardia, and uh, so he, so what had happened was I had to go and pick him up in LaGuardia. So the plan was I drop off the car and get out and jump into Reggie's Rolls Royce. And then he would drive me into the city with him. And so I'm saying to myself, please, Dermon, do not look at the odometer. Please don't look at the odometer. So anyway, we we pull the car in. He gets into the car. He says, thank you. uh, Thanks a lot. I'll see you tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. We chit chatted. And then I run over to Reggie's car and I get in. And then I'm just saying, Reggie, come on, let's go. Reggie, let's go. But I see Thurman start to pull off. And then I see the brake lights. I said, oh, no, this can't be good. And then I see his door open and, Re- and Thurman is getting out. And he wa- walks over to us. And Reggie's going, what's this all about? <laughs> and so anyway, Thurman goes over and he just looks at me. He looks at me. I can't use the words he use, but he go. But he says, "Where'd you go?" And, and and I and I was stumbling in my words. He said, "No, no, no, shut up. We'll talk about it tomorrow." You know, you got a beating coming, right? And I and then he takes off. And, and Reggie goes, "What was that all about?" And so I told him what happened. The next day, I'm in the. I said, "You know what?" If I'm going to get a beating from Thurman Munson, I don't want it in the clubhouse. I want it in the parking lot and no one will see. <laughs> and and the, uh, you,
1: you know, you, you talk about Yankee Stadium and that was a big part of that Yankee team in so many ways. Uh, even after, the, obviously, after they refurbished it because that team was uh, winning back then. Uh, let everybody know, and I've been to the room, you know, you and I went to the room. Tell us about that little hidden room in Yankee Stadium and, and, and some of your duties and stuff like that.
2: Well, uh, I got to meet Eleanor Garrick and uh, Lou Garrick's wife. And one time she was uh, doing a uh, she was doing an interview at Yankee Stadium, and Mister Steinberg has had me sit with her in case she needed anything, whatever she needs. Make sure to take care of her, etc. So naturally, that was a giant thrill for me just to be sitting to the to, the wife of Lou Garrick. And so I told her that I loved the Yankees because of the pride of the Yankees. And then I asked her, everything in that movie, was it, is, was it really like that? And she said, for, for the most part, it was, she said to me. She said there was some things that they should have put in that they didn't put in. And I said, like, what? And she told me about the room where Lou Garrick used to sit in and meditate. Like, one day Lou Garrick was in the clubhouse and DiMaggio had asked him, you feeling better today? Not understanding what Lou's disease was, you know. And so Lou at that point just got up and walked and found his storage room. And he just sat in there in one of the chairs. And he would start going there on a regular basis. And he would go there when, you know, he would cry. And he would meditate. And you know, just pray. And then it got to the point that it was like an everyday thing. And so she told me where the room was. And after that, I had the great uh, artist, James Ferentino. You know who that is, the Hall of Fame artist. And he came in and I took him in there. He's a very spiritual guy. And I said, what do you feel? What do you see? What, What do you hear? And in one of the pillars, he said, this is where Lou Gehrig used to sit. And then he felt the wall. And then he painted a mural of Lou Garrick sitting on the chair. And then when he did that, I said to him, you need to put Thurman on there. You know, and so he put Thurman on there. And then after that, uh, uh, years later, I had him put Jeter on that, uh, on the mural, because to me, those were the three, those are the three core captains i know there have been others but they were not core captains you know what i'm saying nettles is a captain willie was a captain gidry was a captain judge is a captain but in my soul they will never be core captains
1: Mm. yeah and that's uh that was quite a painting and um and and also down that area wasn't a batting
2: cage it was right next to the batting cage, and for years, Jeter wouldn't go in the room. I used to say to him, "I want you to see it. I want you to see it." He wouldn't go in. He was well. Afraid. We all know Jeter
1: was very stubborn.
2: Yeah, and he was afraid for some reason. <laughs> and when we got, when we got to the uh, the last weekend of Yankees, the old Yankee Stadium, I actually bumped into him one day when he was coming out of the gym and getting ready to go to the batting cage. And I said, listen, Derek, this is it, man. Please, not for me, but for you. you got to go in. And so he said, okay, let's go. And that last weekend, he went into that room. And Kevin, to say that this guy, the chills that came through him, because you looked at his arm, you see all the goosebumps.
1: Oh, yeah, I remember talking to him about
2: it. Right? And for some reason something hit him about that room. He felt this something go into him to the point where it's the very next day he was back in there again. Imagine.
1: Yeah. It was a, uh, it was one of those, like they talk about the ghost of Yankee stadium. That's exactly. What, exactly. That and players
2: from different teams, when they would come in, all they wanted the first thing they wanted to do was to go to that room to see the room. Exactly. It was a, uh,
1: yeah, Yankee Stadium was special in a lot of ways, even though, it, you know, um, you know, it was um, they changed it all and everything and moved it over. But I, I still think that and you, and you have, uh, you know, that's kind of solemn ground. And I think what is there there's some to- tournaments there or, or high schools play there? What, what goes on there? I know you spend a lot of time over in the old area.
2: I go there. You know, they have the Little League thing, stuff like that. But you know what? I go there because I go there to meditate. I go there to pray. When I'm having a bad day at the new Yankee Stadium, I go across the street so that people can't see me cry. And and, and I pray. I pray to... I pray to God, and then I pray to the baseball gods, you know what I'm saying, from the standpoint of give me the strength, man, because I know I'm blessed that I get to work at Yankee Stadium as opposed to construction, but even there, I have my days where, you know, I get angry at certain things, you know, so it, it, it is what it is, and when I see the kids there, I always ask them the magic question, do you know who Babe Ruth was? Do you know who Lou Gehrig was? Do you know who Thurman Munson was? You know, uh, things like that. Well, these guys played here. So the fact that you can play on this field is a blessing. It's a blessing.
1: Yeah, it's still a a special place. And I'm going to wrap it up pretty soon because we're we're over our time. But I wanted to ask you about two other players that you have uh, special relationships with. Tell us uh, about Doc and Daryl. The
2: most beautiful relationship that I saw George Steinbrenner have let let me be fair and say one of the most beautiful relationships was with Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry Uh, George Steinbrenner for whatever the reason and I know what they are and it's too personal to talk about but he knew that he had to give these two guys second chances even though so many people in baseball around baseball were telling George don't do it don't do it don't do it you know what he did it anyway and he signed these guys and gave them opportunities and and when they were going through bad times he was he never gave up on them with Daryl, when he had the cancer the, the boss was one of the first ones there for him when Dwight's father died George, before he died, George Steinbrenner was at the hospital holding his hand. And Dan Gooden begged George Steinbrenner, please, please take care of my son. Please take care of my son. I swear to you, Dan, I will. You know what I'm saying? As poor Dwight was standing there watching, just crying hysterical. I mean, when when Dan closed his eyes for the last time, Gooden was jumping up and down like God, God, no, no, no. I mean, just, just, and George right there, right there. And when Dwight was uh, arrested, I mean, remember, they both, after baseball, ended up getting arrested on, on different drug situations. Yeah. And when Dwight was arrested, George Steinbrenner says to me, because George wanted to make this guy like eventually. Uh, director of baseball operations. I mean, he after his baseball career, he had him with him. He flew all over the country with him. He, and, and so when Dwight got back on the drugs, Steinbrenner said to me, he didn't say to me, he screamed at me, don't you ever bring up their name again. Do you hear me? If you do, you're out of here. I said, all right, I heard you. And I walked out of his office. And two weeks later, he calls me in his office and he says, have you heard from the boy? So I said, what are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And I I said, boss, what do you want me to say? He's in jail. And so then he called his FBI guy, Phil McNiff, and he told Phil, Phil, I want to talk to Gooden this afternoon. So arrange it with the prison. And that afternoon, he gets Dwight on the telephone how are you doing son? I'm hanging in there. I'll be all right. I'm hanging in there. He says, he says, Dwight, I'm going to get you out of there and you're going to come back. We're going to try this again and we're going to get it right this time. Do you hear me? We're going to get it right this time. And Dwight said, no, no. He says, I can't break your heart again. I can't do it. And he hung up and that was the last time they talked. Mm, Amazing. And, uh, you know it's good that uh,
1: you know doc is still around with us and he's uh, you know we got to get him on one day cuz his story is amazing and and Daryl what he's done he's he's moved into a you know into Daryl is
2: unbelievable what he's doing is real he's a minister along with his wife and 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 God has literally saved his life he, even though he gives so much credit to George Steinbrenner but God has literally held the fort for him so that he doesn't have to uh, uh drug anymore you know and yeah
1: exactly and it's interesting too after i wrote, you know when we did our piece recently for ball nine called bat boy uh, a lot of you know we covered a lot of the ground not 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 as not as much as this but um after that my appeared somebody a, a baseball person. And I don't want to mention who, but, you know, it's, you know, I got a lot of comments and um, this baseball person wrote a note to me and mentioned something that I didn't think of at the time, but it, it really was brilliant. The brilliance of Steinbrenner, George Steinbrenner, he would hire kids from the neighborhood and kind of maybe give them, get them in the right road and the right path. But they were also Yankee fans and there was a special loyalty to the Yankees that those young and I'm talking about you know a lot of different roles you know that, that he hired people for and um, those those younger working people had some loyalty to Steinbrenner and and loyalty to the Yankees that was really unmatched and this person made the comment and I thought about it and I said you know that's that's pretty true now when you hire a lot of young people especially in in the baseball or in baseball organizations. Um, um, whether they're interns or whatever, they're almost searching for the next job. You know, right. Uh, right. once you're, like the way this guy put it to me, he said, "You know, once you're hired as an intern, you're already working on your next team, next organization." Right. But the 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 the, uh, the genius of Steinberg, in a lot of ways, for all his faults, was that he hired people that really loved the Yankees, and that made a difference.
2: He he hired people that really loved the Yankees, but I mean, real quick, I'm just want to tell you, I want this one bad boy. I'll never forget. His name is Sam Carey. Mm-hmm. Sam. Won-
1: yeah, Sam. Right.
2: Sam was waiting for his father. His father called him and he said, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to take you to a Yankee game. And
1: he's a little kid at this point. He's, like, yeah, he's he a little kid
2: right and he never, and, and the father never showed up. Sam never saw his father again. And for years, Sam would go to Yankee stadium and wait outside thinking that someday maybe his father will show up there. It never happened.
1: Just to make it clear again. Just just to help the people paint this picture. The old Yankee Stadium, for another beautiful thing about the old Yankee Stadium was the parking lot where I parked in and the media parked in was also the players' parking lot. Right. And it was it was right. in this it was right across the street from the players' entrance and the That's media right. entrance. And so you, if you're a Yankee fan and there were always, you know, people just hanging there, you got to see you know, Jeter walk right in, and all these right. guys walk in, and sometimes right. they stop and sign autographs. So right. that whole area was a place where you could hang, and this, uh, you know, That's Sam right. could hang there.
2: That's right. And and Sam would go there every day and watch the guys come in and out, in and out. So he see his heroes, but at the same time, he was waiting for his father. And and one day, George Steinbrenner sees uh, see Sam. He saw him on on several occasions. And one day he just said, "When this was a day, Steinbrenner was sweeping. He he Steinbrenner was sweeping the parking lot because the team had been on the road, and there had been like some gang fights, so there were there were bottles and stuff broken into what he called it. And Steinbrenner was had gotten there real early and wondering what the hell. So he got some brooms and he started sw- himself sweeping the place, and he saw Sam." And he asked him, how come, you're not, uh, how come you're not in school? And he says, because it's a Jewish holiday. And Steinbrenner, with his uh, sense of humor, goes, well, you're not Jewish. You know, Sam was black, you know. And, and so anyway, he says, you want to help us? And Sam said, yeah. Sam helped us sweep the place up. Next thing you know, he takes him. He says, you want a job? He said, yeah. He took him to the visitor's locker room. He made him a bad boy in the visitors' side, and Sam was there for several years. The boss loved Sam. One time, the boss had been away for a while, and then when he came back that week, he noticed that he didn't see Sam anyplace, and he asked me, "What happened to Sam?" And, and Sam, I'd, he would even Sam was so beloved that he would go to spring training. right? Well, yeah, but the boss would bring him to spring training, he would bring him to the World Series, He'd bring him to, you know, bring him to the playoffs. And, and so, anyway, I had to tell the boss. He said, when he said, What happened to Sam? I said, Sam joined the circus. And he, he really said, did. <laughs> And I said, Boss, uh, he said, Ray, stop messing around. Where's Sam? I said, Boss, Sam joined the circus. Why? I said, I guess he wanted to see the world. And Steinbrenner starts laughing hysterical. And I said, Boss, what's so funny? He said, Didn't Sam understand after all these years that he was already in the circus?
1: The Bronx Zoo was a circus,
2: right? Right. Uh, it's
1: a great story, and uh, Dave, back to you.
0: Yeah, and no, just uh, one quick one, Ray, and then we'll bounce it back to Kevin for our final question that he he for every guest. But w- our audience understands how special it is that we have Kevin Kernan on on this show and our network. I want you to shed some light, because he won't ever brag about himself in that regard. What made Kevin so beloved in that Yankee circle, and and because uh, not many people had or have the access that he had with the relationships that he had. But what, what made him so uh, beloved in that circle with uh, Yankee? I mean, as far up as Steinbrenner.
2: Sports writers generally aren't really good writers. You know what I'm saying? They could, they could write a story. You know what I'm saying? But they were generally... Uh, Ke- with Kevin, the players were smart enough to understand that he was Hemingway. Okay? He was Hemingway with a typewriter. And, and and so when he wrote his stories, he he wrote it from the heart and not bang bang bang. You understand? And that and that and so he was trusted that way, and and and, and he was befriended that way. And Hank Steinbrenner used to say to me, "I love Kevin Kernan. Kevin Kernan is a great writer. He, whenever he needs me, I'll I'll do whatever he needs." Is it true or not true, Kevin? True. True. okay, yep. I mean that's just the way it was and that's why the that's why the players trusted him that way. That's why George Steinbrenner trusted Kevin Kernan in that way. He George Steinbrenner who was a very good writer. Okay, George Steinbrenner was a very good writer and he loved Kevin's style. You know what I'm saying? He loved the style. Yeah.
0: Now p- please tell me this now, was Kevin a good disco dancer? Hell no. <laughs> That's true too. <laughs> okay. I'll pass it back to you, Kim.
1: Yeah, Ray. One of the uh, things we always do, and you, you'll have people that we have on the show come from varied backgrounds, baseball backgrounds, whatever life backgrounds, and um, we always ask them the same question. It's a simple baseball question, really, uh, but we get a lot of different answers. And um, we're going to throw it at you. It's, it's, you. Think about it for a second. You know, you, you don't have to answer right away. Like I said, it's a simple question, but uh, you know, to you, Ray Negron, Bat Boy, you know, um, writer, so many things you've done. I'm looking forward to that documentary. To you, Ray Negron, what does it mean to be a ball player? What does it mean to be a ball player?
2: Well, what? Is, uh, remember, I wasn't a ball player. So that's a tough question because I wasn't a ball player. I mean, I I played pro ball with the Pirates for a second. And uh, I, it, made me, it made me understand the magnitude of how great a major league baseball player has to be. Anybody that plays in a major league is a true, incredible talent, a true, incredible talent. There are only 900 jobs, 900 jobs in a world of billions. That's pretty darn good. You know what I'm saying? The work ethic that goes into it, you know, it, it's unbelievable. It's phenomenal. And, and and players do not get the credit that they deserve for that beautiful art form that they have. Because baseball, play, being a baseball player is an art. As they say, the single most difficult thing in the world to do is to hit a baseball. You know? And, hey, Michael Jordan, one of the greatest athletes of all time, proved that. He was only a 200 hitter. Okay. Even though he thought that he could play the game and he hey under the circumstances he did all right. Deion Sanders, you know, there are guys like this. Bo Jackson, even though Jabo was pretty darn good ball player. Was he a Hall of Fame baseball player? Absolutely not, but he was a Hall of Fame football player.
0: Yeah,
1: great great answer, great points, and uh great having you on the show. Your stories are amazing and it, it really gives people insight into uh into that Yankee world that, uh, continues today. And, uh, go ahead, Dave, finish us off.
0: No, I echo that. Ray, thanks so much for joining us today on episode 271. I know our audience, we have a very sophisticated audience. They're baseball crazy and they're going to eat this episode up. Hey, let me say, uh, let, let, you
2: know. hey, let me say this in my 50 years in the game, the Bronx Zoo Yankees of Reggie and Thurman and Billy and uh, Bucky and Mickey Rivers, who was wonderful, the greatest dancer of all time in the clubhouse, and, and Disco Dom Scala and Eddie Figueroa and Chris Chambliss, who's so underrated is ridiculous, and the wonderful Paul Blair, who was the greatest defensive ball player of all time. And Goose Gossage, I mean, th- th- those those were wonderful, wonderful guys, wonderful players. They showed me what baseball is really all about. Af- anything after that, no, no, no. That was the in- most incredible era, the most incredible team. They were wonderful, and I am so blessed to have been a part of it, in, no matter how small. And I'm grateful.
0: I think that's, that our audience is going to get a ton out of this episode, but the one uh, the one thing that stands out is your gratitude and that you're constantly giving back and appreciative of the opportunities. And you took advantage of the opportunities. I think the kids in the audience need to to lock in on that, uh, that you you uh, were awarded opportunities because of who you are as a person, who you connected with, and you took uh, advantage of it by just putting your head down, going to work and developing relationships. And I think that's that's admirable. That's a ball player. Um, so I think... I, uh, but being drafted too, Ray—that's a ball player too. It takes a special guy to get drafted. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna argue with you on that. We'll agree to disagree. But you, uh, episode 271, we've had 50,000 subscribers close to it now. I just want to thank you guys. Keep supporting us. We can keep bringing you great content like we did today with with Ray Nagron on, and of course, continue to support Kevin and our brothers over at Ball Nine. Uh, read those articles. Kevin puts out two articles a week, as he said, the Sunday articles, the editorial. Um, So two different, uh, two different scopes, but both wonderfully penned every single week. You won't be disappointed. 74 countries now grassroots MLB front offices. We're just trying to build better baseball IQ out there through education and some of our stories here. And Ray, thanks so much for coming on today and and sharing your stories with us. And Kevin, thank you for what you do for the network.
2: Great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you to Randy Levine for always having my back.
1: Yeah, Randy, uh, Yeah, Randy, Randy.
0: uh... Randy gets the job done there. Yeah. And with that, we'll say bye to our audience. And audience, thank you. And keep supporting us on this network. Real Voices of the Game, Coaching Kern at episode 271 in the books.